John chapter 10. What would it take to make you want to hurt somebody? Not the start of a sermon you probably projected that I would have this morning. Let me make it worse for you. What would it take for you to want to kill somebody? What would that take for you to want to kill somebody? We just, as you know, we just went on a uh, 10-day vacation. The longest we've ever been away from Mitch Road in 24 years. And uh, we stayed basically in hotel rooms with all five of us. So we know what it's like to want to hurt somebody. Like we, that's, that's established. Uh, one of the four family vacations that we've ever been on in our lifetimes. We've been on more vacations, but with other families. We've never just us five. And we made it through it pretty well until we got home. And uh, we flew back into Charlotte from San Francisco. Everybody was tired. We had not seen a Chick-fil-A the whole trip. That was part of the problem. <laughs> and we got back, flew in late, and we found a Chick-fil-A right outside the gates in Charlotte. And everybody knows how it works. You go in there, you give them the order, and there's two lanes, and there's two cars. And I ordered the same time this big, big truck ordered. And we kind of like did that like jockeying. Are you going to go or am I going to go? And... He went, and that was fine because it was fair at that moment. And he went, but the guy behind him stayed right on his bumper. And I stayed right on that guy's bumper. And we got closer and closer and closer, and the guy would not relent. And everybody knows at Chick-fil-A, you alternate. Everybody knows that. That guy goes, you go. That guy goes, you go. Everybody knows that how it works. Well, this guy did not know that. He didn't get the memo. And so he got closer and closer, and he would not let me in, and he's edging me out. And I'm getting closer and closer, and I'm probably this far away when I decided I'm just going to lay on my horn. I mean, it was so close. I mean, so close from here to, I don't want to use any examples because the communion table, that's sacred, and baptism, that's sacred. (laughs) But I'm so close. I laid on my horn, and uh, everybody in the car was shocked. And Elizabeth said to nobody in particular, I guess somebody didn't learn to share in kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs) To which I retorted, my pleasure. That's what I said. (laughs) And I didn't want to, I didn't want to kill the guy, but make no bones about it. If he got out of his car, I was going to throw the first punch. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I don't mind just punching somebody. That doesn't bother me a bit. What would it take for you to want to kill somebody? What would it take for you to want to pick up a stone, look somebody in the eyes, and hit them with it? I mean, sometimes we read these scriptures, and we don't put them in the context of what it would have taken to want to kill somebody. Why do you want to kill somebody? Because here's why. Jesus is threatening to you. He's so threatening to you, and he's so threatening to the Pharisees, and he's so threatening to the people that they thought, we're going to have to kill him. That's the solution here. So pick up with me, John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered him, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? (laughs) Imagine that. Do you know the way stoning worked then? The person who was uh, offended would take the stone, a big stone, and would walk up to the person and would look him right in the eye and hit him as hard as they could. Hopefully, the hope was you would knock him out at that moment. And then every, the community, it was a community thing. Everybody would gather around and throw stones until they were dead. Sometimes the stones flew and the person didn't die. That's why Paul, for example, could crawl out of that situation. But it was a very intense and personal moment. And the Jews got to the point where they thought the only way to get rid of Jesus, because he's so threatening to us, is to stone him. And why is he threatening? Because of his works. You know, we live in a, uh, this has been documented before, but we live in a cancel culture. It's not really a cancel culture. It's more of a purity culture. It's more of a culture where we say, you're not pure enough to be involved with it. Uh, You've somehow relegated yourself out because of a tweet you made 10 years ago or because of something you said at MTW or something you did. You're now out of this. It's a purity culture. And you can't establish a cancel culture or a purity culture without two things arising. Number one is self-righteousness. You're out because we're pure and you're not. And the second thing is insecurity. And that's what we're starting to get to. Because everybody will eventually think, if humility wins the day, I should be canceled as well. If I'm honest, I'm a fraud as well. Well, for these Jews, it was their self-righteousness that made them want to say, Jesus, you've got to get out of here because of your works. Jesus says, look what he says. I've shown you many good works. In other words, he's juxtaposing slightly what's happening in John chapter 10 with what happened in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, there was a woman, a sinful woman, who was going to be stoned. If you remember that example, they pick up stones to stone her, and they ask Jesus some advice, and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We're going to stone this woman for all the horrible things that she did. You're going to stone me for what? All the good things I've done? Oh, For what? Good Name a good work. And I think it gives a little bit of credence to the hypothetical situation of what I think happened in John 8, which is this. You remember Jesus riding in the sand and then the crowds dispersed. And I don't know, this is conjecture, but I imagine in that scene where they're about to stone this woman, Jesus then looked around and said, Shammai wrote his sin in the sand. Jacob wrote his sin in the sand. Samuel wrote his sin in the sand. (laughs) We can stone all of us. You want to just go around? Eventually nobody's going to be left. And here he says, which of the good works are you going to stone me for? But the good works of Christ are threatening. They're threatening to the Jews, and the good works of Christ are threatening to us. And here's why. If Jesus did all the good works, then there's nothing that you and I have left to negotiate with. 
If we can't win God over by our moralism, if we can't kind of store up some kind of negotiating power that we can negotiate God with, then all of our power, all of our control is taken away, but his good works are also beautiful because you're saved by his death and you're saved by his life. Do you realize that? You're not just saved by his death. His death assuages the wrath of God. It takes away this propitiation for our sins. But we're also saved by his life. In theology, this is what we call active and passive obedience. By his death is Christ's passive obedience by which he covers all of our sin, assuages God's wrath. But by his active obedience, doing everything in this life that we should have done, that all gets credited to our account. So we're not just wiped clean and we have to start over. We're saved by his works and we're saved by his death. You put it in the context of sins of omission and sins of commission. You have sins of commission, things that you've done that you've probably confessed, hopefully this morning, and you'll probably need to confess by lunchtime again, right? Because all of life is repentance and faith. At least I will need to confess by lunchtime. Sins of commission, Christ covered at his death, but the sins of omission are the things that you know you should have done that you never did. Those are covered by his life. Those are covered by his works. And what all of this does is spark a greater love and obedience in us. What's so threatening about Christ is you can't cancel him and you can't kill him. And verse 28, you can't keep him from loving you. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. You've heard me say this before, but let me just say it again. Jesus loves you, and there's not a thing that you can do about that. And he's going to keep loving you if you're one of his sheep. And no matter how much you doubt and no matter how much your heart betrays you and no matter how much you sin, you're never going to be snatched out of his hand, and that can be threatening to us as well. For those of us who struggle with self-righteousness, you look at Jesus and you realize, I'm not the pure one. And for those of us who struggle with insecurity, you look at Christ and you say, you know everything about me already. I don't even have to confess it and you still love me. He threatens us by his works. Here's the second sub point. He threatens us by his claims. Uh, I'm not going to read verse 19, but earlier up in 19 and 20 and 21, he made these claims and they said, These are so radical, you must have a demon. But here in our text, he goes on and he says in verse 33, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into this world, you're blaspheming? Because I said I'm the Son of God. If I'm not doing the words of my Father, then you don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I and in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. 
Jesus threatens us by his works, and he threatens us by his claims. This is a fascinating text. I don't have time to go into it because we're preaching the whole chapter. But basically, Jesus doubled down on everything they said. They said, you're trying to make yourself God. And he said, no, basically, no, I already am God. Not trying to make myself into a God. I already am God. And I and the Father are one. And he sent me. And I speak directly for everything that he thinks. And I am the manifestation of God himself. He didn't go this far. I am the second person of the Holy Trinity. Thank you very much. He could have easily said that. There's any number of claims he said. But the claims made them want to arrest him. It's the second time they wanted to arrest him. The first time he was in the temple and he hid, which is a fascinating scene. Can you just imagine that? I like to think, and again, This is conjecture as well. But I like to think that when he hid, he hid himself in the Holy of Holies. I just like to imagine that. That he went in there and spent some time with the Ark of the Covenant. I have no idea if that's true or not. But I just like to imagine scripture at some points. But here they sought to arrest him. Okay, we can't stone him. He's too smart for us. He's getting out of every kind of legal thing we throw at him. So let's just arrest him. And then we'll figure all of this out later. Let's just get them off the streets. Let's get them out of here, arrest them, and we'll figure it all out later. Why did they want to arrest him? Because of his claims. His claims are not small. I and the Father are one. I speak directly for the Father. He commissioned me from heaven to do these works for you. And I want you to think about that. His claims are not small. It's not like he said, look, I'm going to help you be a better person. I'm going to help you learn how to be a good husband. I'm going to help you fight that addiction. No, he said, the world was made through me. It was made for me. It was made by me. All of you exist because of me. I am the representation of all that is love. I have come to tell you that I love you and that you're a horrible sinner. And I still love you. And that there's a heaven and there's a hell. And there's only one way to get to heaven, and it's through the door. You can't climb over the fence. You can't break in the side entrance. And the door is me, and I'm the shepherd. And the only way you get there with all the other thoughts and all the other worldviews and all the other religions, the only way you get there is through me, and everybody else will perish eternally. These are not small claims. And so, of course, they're going to be threatening Because if those things are true, and they are, you're going to feel threatened. Why are you going to feel threatened? What makes you, let's go back to the original question. What makes you want to hurt somebody when you feel threatened? But when you feel threatened, why would you want to kill somebody? Because you're trying to protect something, right? It's not just the threat. It's the protection, See, I, there's, I could feel threatened in many ways. I felt, I didn't really feel threatened by that guy in the Honda CRV, but, uh, you know, you could feel threatened and it would get your dander up. But there are a few times I would kill to protect something, i.e., my family. I would kill for that. Uh, we, uh, one more story about our trip. Just one more. I'm sure I'll sprinkle in more for the next 10 years because we have only done this once in 24. But uh, one more. We were on the John Muir Trail at Yosemite, and uh, we were having to do these switchbacks. All, all Elizabeth wanted to do, the whole trip was see a bear. I don't understand that. 
uh, you're in wild, you're in nature, you can go to zoos and see bears. I don't see the attraction. In a safe environment, I'll pay 20 bucks, take you down to Greenville, you can see a bear there. I don't get the gig. But that's all she wanted. Well, the Lord answered her prayer. We saw this bear really close. And then when we were doing these switchbacks, and we were on a pretty obscure trail, no one was around us at all. We were doing these switchbacks to get up, and the bear was going across. He was going straight up the mountain across our switchbacks. If you're not a hiker, you have no idea what I'm saying right now, but just trust me. Uh, So every time we would get to a switchback, the bear would be either above us or below us, pretty dense foliage. So we're making noises, trying to just let him know where we are. It was a cub, which is worse because you don't know where the mom is. It's always the moms that get you. It's the moms that maul you. I just said that so somebody would take that out of context and tweet that somewhere. And so we, we came on many occasions within 10 to 12 feet of that bear, often not knowing it was there, just on the perch right above it. There it is. And then we do a switchback, he'd be below us. And then we do a switchback, he'd be above us. And he's cutting up while we're switching back. And I thought what every father, husband would think I'm still the fastest person in this family. (laughs) I I would never sacrifice Elizabeth, but these girls are getting expensive. (laughs) And I, it's only going to get worse from here. Uh, They could go out with a blaze of glory at 18, you know, we'll celebrate their life. No, I thought just like everybody, I, I will die for this family. I was never nervous. I was never nervous. He seemed pretty docile, but I did run through the scenarios in my head, right? Like everybody would do. Okay, if he comes at us now, what's my play? And my go-to was, I know I can tackle him, and now I know if I tackle him and roll off this mountain, it solves it. It creates other problems. I might die with them, but I protect the family, right? And I thought through that scenario, okay, right now, if he comes, what am I doing? I'm grabbing him. I'm going off that cliff with them because now I know everything's done. They're protected, right? I would totally kill that bear for them, 10 times out of 10, to protect them. And here's the issue. The issue is for us, his claims are so large. We're so threatened by all of this that we we want to be a people that learn to protect everything that we need to protect, but also to lay down everything that we need to lay down. See, the Pharisees wanted to protect their worldview. They wanted to protect their self-righteousness. But the claims of Christ are so large that we often say, we want you to keep your, you're threatening to us. We want you to keep your hands off of our sexuality. Keep your hands off of our finances. Keep your hands off of who we should forgive. Keep your hands off. In other words, we're fine to look at you like that bear from a distance. We're fine for you to be 10, 15, 20 feet away. But Jesus, just don't get that close to us. And what we don't see is that by him getting close to us is him trying to protect us. Christians, we're at a unique time in church history in some senses. In other senses, there's nothing new under the sun. But we're at this uh, unique time where we're called, unlike ever before, at least in my lifetime, to be simultaneously courageous and also sacrificial. To, at the same time, stand firm in the truth, 
but also to give up our own rights. To be uh, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. To allow Jesus to threaten us, threaten our lives with his claims, not to use his claims to threaten everybody else. We're at a very unique time. And the question really for us as we go into this time is uh, not what you need to protect. Because what I hear is a lot of fear and everybody wants to protect something that they're afraid is going to get ripped from them. Jesus is the one who's going to be the most threatening if you read his word. But the question is not what you need to protect. The question is what protects you. And so look back at John chapter 10. I'm taking this uh, whole text in the opposite order. Verses 1 through 6, I'm not going to read, but I've already highlighted before, which is basically, he's the door, and uh, you can't enter another way. But now let me pick up in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I said to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have no other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus protects us, again, two sub-points here. The first one is this. He protects us through laying down his life. So much to highlight in this text. Not enough time could preach a whole series on it, but just look at verse 12. He compares himself, the good shepherd, with the hired hand. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. A hired hand is a contract, right? You hire somebody like a rancher would in Yellowstone. I'm going to hire you to take care of this field. I'm going to hire you to take care of this flock, this pasture, these things. But hired hands are just that. It's a contract. You pay them for a service. They do their service or they don't do their service. But hired hands have the tendency to run away when things get tough because they don't don't have any invested interest in it. They're not ownership. They don't have any equity, right? So eventually the waitress, after years of mistreatment, is going to take off her apron and throw it in your face and say, I'm done with this place. I'm done. I'm the hired hand. I'm tired of being mistreated. But the owner won't do that. And Jesus doesn't do that. 
Instead of taking off his apron, Jesus takes off his cloak and he says, I'll wash your feet. I'll actually come to you and I'm gonna protect you and I'm gonna make sure you get home because I own you. And I and the Father are one. That's a huge claim. What does he protect us from? He protects us from thieves, from robbers, from wolves. In other words, from anything, as it says in verse 10, that's going to keep us from life. And life, this is one of my favorite verses in all the scripture, life abundantly, life that is overflowing. I don't know if you think, many people who are like millennials think this, that Jesus wants to rob you from life, that he wants to somehow make your life miserable. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In the Greek, it's have it overflowingly. I want your life to be so bubbling over that it just trickles over to other people. I want to give you that kind of life if you just follow me and trust me. I want to keep you from all the idols that rob you of life. And idols are what typically rob us of life. Idols are anything that takes the place of God. So Rebecca Piper says it this way, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord's and the Lord little L and the idols of our lives. So here's the question. What is controlling you that's robbing you from life? That's your idol. It might be finances. And you hope if you... Save up enough that eventually finances will protect you. It might be sexuality. You hope if you can get through enough women or get through enough guys, feed the flesh for as long as you can, eventually you'll find joy. It might be uh, reputation. And so you post picture after picture after picture after post after post after post, hoping that somebody in that Twitter, that Instagram universe will finally say, we're satisfied with you now. But it's a, it's a bad game, idolatry, isn't it? Because what idols do, whatever your idol is, and we all have them, as John Calvin says, the heart is an idol-making factory. So we all have them. Whatever your idol is, it requires you to continually lay down your life for it, to continually make sacrifices for that idol, to continually feed it hoping that it will one day protect you. And here Jesus says, the gig is done. I will lay down my life for you because I love you and I know you and I own you and I protect you. And nobody will ever do anything to get you out of my hand. Now, if that's our God, and it is, then that's a God worth following So Jesus protects you through laying down his life. But he also protects us by leading us. As a good shepherd, he leads us with his rod, with his staff, with his commands, with his love, by his direction, by his conviction, he leads us. That's why we read Psalm 23 so often. I think we have it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Do you think the sheep knew? I'll just pause there. Do you think the sheep knew they were going to green pastures and still waters? They had no idea. They're like, why are you taking us through this bramble? I know where I'm going. 
And that's the way it is with Christ in our lives. Sometimes he has to take us through these things. I know I'm trying to get you these green pastures of greater trust and greater faith. Will you just follow me? He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The thief comes to kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life. So let me ask this, and then we'll come right to this communion table. If Jesus has laid down his life for you, if he's also threatening to you by his claims and by his works, but now if you can see his love for you, Unlike the love that an idol would give you that requires continual sacrifice, that Jesus is willing to lay down his life for you. Now my question for you is this. Where is he leading you? Like this week. Like today. Uh, It's not a theoretical, ethereal question. What conversations do you need to have? What do you need to confess What do you need to believe about your neighbor? Uh, Where is he calling you to greater obedience? What is he asking you to carry right now? You might think you don't have the strength for it, but have you even asked him for the strength? Where where is he leading you to trust him for greater depths of joy and greater depths of passion? Like, where is he leading you? He's leading you somewhere now. If we would take the time and listen, and if we would pray about it, and if we would ask the good shepherd, where do you want me to go right now? I just retired. What should I do? I'm going to be a freshman in college. Should I rush or not? I don't know whether to start this business, sell this business, or quit this business. I've got incredible problems in my marriage, and I don't know what to do about it. Would you lead me? Would you show me? You're the good shepherd who directs me and leads me to great pastures. I'm a high school kid, and I don't know who I should hang out with next year, whether I should date this girl or not. And would you lead me for what I should do in this life? David Cassidy, he's a good friend of mine. He's a pastor. He's become a big name in the PCA. He sent me this poem the other day, which says, I think we have it up here. God is our king. God our king is more affectionate than any friend, more just than any ruler, more loving than any father, more a part of us than our own limbs, more necessary to us than our own heart. He is both the inn at which we rest for the night and our journey's final end. It's a beautiful poem. Because as we come to communion, uh, this is just a, you're going to come to the front in a second. I'll give you directions. And you're just going to get a little piece of bread. And you're just going to get a little bit of juice. And we talk about it being a feast, but it's really not that much. I mean, I've had non-Christian friends say, y'all talk about communion like it's this big deal. And it doesn't even wet my whistle. Like, I don't, you know, what is happening? Well, you can imagine it this way. If you're lost right now, or if you're distant from Christ, imagine these like breadcrumbs that lead you home. They're just some crumbs. The feast is going to come. But these are just some crumbs 
and a little bit of juice and a little bit of bread placed out by the Savior to lead you back to him, to remember that his grace is sufficient. And as you go back to him, he'll continue to lead you by his word, by his power, and by his grace. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now that as we come to this table, that you would guide us and direct us. God, there's no uh, God like you. There's no shepherd like you. You lay down your life for us. You protect us. You care for us. You came to give us life. And we recognize that your claims and your works are going to be threatening to us. And may we allow them to be stripped of our self-righteousness and stripped of our insecurity so that we can see and proclaim that you're the pure one. You're the righteous one. You're the holy one. And we are the broken ones claimed by Christ, made uh, in your image, sinners and at the same time just struggling with our own brokenness and at the same time righteous, but on this journey together as you lead us. And so now for these friends, as we take some time to ponder personally our lives and what you've done by laying down your life and by uh, all the good works that you've done, may uh, these crumbs lead us back to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take